We're starting things off with a word from our sponsor. Since 1998, DVD Netflix has delivered more than 5 billion DVD and Blu-ray rentals to movie lovers in every American zip code and to military bases around the world in their famous, iconic red envelopes. With an extensive library of titles from the early 1900s to today and shows from such premium networks as HBO and Showtime, DVD Netflix is a must for physical media lovers. Featuring a variety of different plans starting at as little as $8.99 per month, it's a great way to experience DVDs and Blu-rays with special features and commentary tracks you won't find anywhere else. A member for over 20 years, so well before I ever began working with the service as an official blogger on acting or as a DVD, Netflix, Twitter, film discussion host, I think it's a terrific way to keep our vintage video store memories alive and support the physical media that we love so much. So be sure to check out DVD Netflix for yourself at dvd.com. Now, on with the show. Hey, this is Jen Johans at filmintuition.com and filmintuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch with Jen. In researching and preparing this week's episode, I encountered so many pearls of wisdom about filmmaking, men and women, and life. From the granddaddy of American independent cinema, Mr. John Cassavetes. While I referenced many of these throughout this conversation, there were still numerous quotations that I read in Ray Carney's book, Cassavetes on Cassavetes, that I wanted to include and share with you. Just as I did in the John Houston episode that kicked off this season, you will hear recordings of me reading some of these excerpts sprinkled throughout today's conversation. I am very aware that not only am I not a voice actor, but once again, I am a woman voicing a man and will be recruiting male friends to do the honors in the future. But I hope you're able to overlook that and enjoy the words of John Cassavetes, which I humbly tried to bring to life for you today. This is an excerpt from a letter that John Cassavetes wrote to Ray Carney. That is included in the book, Cassavetes on Cassavetes. Quote, making a film has been compared by many good directors to a love affair. What hasn't been said is that this film, the recipient of the love, is the victim of an organized orgy. It seems to me much too personal and embarrassing to humiliate the woman, the film, by describing the details of the affair. This is not to say that filmmaking is not personal and ideas of the love encounter don't churn in your brain and that filmmaking is not momentarily satisfying with each climax or understanding, but that son of a gun cameraman is in competition. That bloody woman, that film has so many lovers and each of us resents the other one using tricks. I myself refuse to be put in that position that I am the king of her lovers, directing each one of them to approach her with tenderness and care. To me, she is a unique mystery that I want to get to know on my own level, photograph her as she has never been photographed, record her voices, make her laugh or cry, 
and check out all her emotions to make sure they are real. Because at some time when she has been romanced sufficiently, we will then have to hand her over to others to examine her and to judge how she has been made love to. I think it is best to pretend that you are the only lover and that it is a short and powerful urge that drives you through that brief ecstasy. It then becomes easier to fall in love again. I appreciate your continued and powerful interest in our women, but for me, the romance was over long ago, and the only thoughts that I have are in finding another woman. At my age, love becomes harder and harder to achieve. John Cassavetes, 1982. I'm so pleased to welcome a new friend to the podcast, an actor and an acting teacher in his native Canada. Robert Bellissimo has appeared in numerous television shows, feature films, commercials, and plays, and two recent credits include Private Eyes, starring Jason Priestley, and Robbery, which starred Art Hindle as well. A passionate cinephile for almost 20 years, in his late 20s, he realized he wanted to explore storytelling in a more in-depth way. And when the COVID-19 lockdown began in March of 2020, he took advantage of this free time that he had and created his high-quality YouTube channel, Robert Bellissimo at the Movies reviewing and introducing viewers to some of cinema's greatest films over the past two years. He's interviewed many industry professionals who work in and around theater, TV, and or film, including yours truly, who's been honored to appear on the channel twice so far, the first time to discuss Corsese's Goodfellas and in recent weeks, returning to tackle Hitchcock's Notorious as well. Robert, thank you so much for being here. I always enjoy talking movies with you. How are you doing and how is summer treating you so far? So far, so good. But yeah, firstly, thanks so much for, for having me. I, I had such a great ch time chatting with you as well on Notorious and Goodfellas. So yeah. um, I'm happy to now join you on your great show also. So thanks oh. so much for the, having me on. Thank you so much. Yeah, it was such a ball doing that. We met basically on social and we had a mutual friend, a couple mutual friends, Raquel yeah. Stetcher also, but uh, Kate Gabrielle had been on and told me how much That's fun right. she had. And so I was really looking forward to that. Yes. And yeah. your channel is just so infectious and so passionate. It's positive. I, I love everything about it. So, oh, thank you. Yeah. Thanks so much. And I'm always so impressed by how prolific you are with your channel. You drop cinephile worthy content at such a rapid pace. So what have you <laughs> uploaded lately to Robert Bellismo at the movies? Are there any favorite videos that you would like to recommend to anyone who's listening that might be new to the channel? And also, is there anything you have in the works for the future you'd like to give us a sneak preview of? Sure. You know, it's interesting because because that like you, you I, I'm sure uh, perhaps you can relate to this, but we, you know, we're doing so many of these episodes. I, I sometimes think, yeah, what are my favorites? Is it because is it, is it, <laughs> like, I know what my yeah, it's so hard. And I, I think I'm like, you know, in two almost two and a half years, it's it's like well over 300 episodes. Mm -hmm. um, so like I know what my favorite 
you know, some of my favorite films are, but were those necessarily the best episodes? It's always hard to say, but um, yeah, no, recently I had, I, I really enjoy having writers on who people who yeah. write books on film, uh, whether it's a biography or it's um, a film analysis book. Um, so I recently had Patricia White, who wrote a, Beck, a, a book on Rebecca, the making of uh, the Hitchcock film Rebecca. Um, so that was the most recent episode. And just before that, I had uh, Paul, Paul Rowan, who wrote a book on the making of Ryan's daughter. Oh, the, wow. Uh, David, David Lean film. And mm-hmm. it's like, honestly, it's an incredible, um, it's an incredible book. So um, those were the two most recent ones that I just recorded uh, a review of uh, Red Desert, the Antonioni film that'll be out on the uh, be out on the weekend and i've got some uh, exciting guests coming on uh Catherine uh Kendall who was in Swingers with oh, the, cool. the John Favreau film uh she was one of the cast members in that and uh, one of the uh one of the the cast in many Scors- early Scorsese films he was in uh Taxi Driver and Who's That Knocking at My Door and and Mean Streets yeah Harry uh Harry Northup who was in like I said, a lot of the early Scorsese films, uh, pretty much all of them up right up until right up until Raging Bulls. So we're I'm going to interview him and then tie that into uh, a taxi driver review. Uh, so, yeah, it, you know, I I don't know in terms of favorite episodes. That's tough. I mean, I, I obviously have, you know, Cassavetes being my favorite filmmaker, um, you know, just talking about him with with anyone is always uh <laughs> is always a real treat and i've done we i've done every single one of his films yeah i've yeah. done i've done all the movies um he was in so yeah that's a t- tough one i mean i really when i interviewed Lawrence grobel who's a, a well-known celebrity journalist and author he was an incredible uh guy and really funny uh, oh, wow. to talk he to wrote, um such a good interview book with al pacino yes that i yes. loved yes yeah i was i was nervous to talk to him because he's considered like the mozart of interviewers right and i just yeah. thought how am i going to interview this guy <laughs> but he was so easy to talk to and you know he's from brooklyn and he's got that new york attitude i remember as soon as i he came into the call i uh i said i asked him if he had any questions about how the you know how the interview was going to go. And he just went, I don't have any questions. You're the one talking to me. You're the one asking <laughs> me questions. <laughs> That's good. And uh, I just, I cracked up, but he, um, Real he was really, sounds like. yeah. And his book on interviewing people for anyone who's a podcaster or just interviewing in any ways, it's from 2004. Okay. Uh, the That's it. The art of the interview. Uh, it's a fantastic book. And his, of course, as you mentioned, his Pacino book, his, Marlon Brando book, his Robert Evans book, uh, Truman Capote, the Houston families. He's yeah. I mean, his books are incredible. So, so he was a treat, but I, I suppose people can go through it. I mean, there's a, there's a wealth of, you know, we've done all kinds. I've, uh, I've done all kinds of different films with, you know, a variety of guests. Um, I originally had a co-host and he left last year and he had, he had much more commercial taste than I did. So we we even did things like you know Karate Kid or Adventures in Babysitting. Gotcha. Which, I mean, not to sound like 
not to sound pretentious, but I wouldn't normally want to do <laughs> to do that. I mean, yeah, they're fun, but I wouldn't really, but he wanted to. So, um, yeah, but yeah, there's you gotcha. know, foreign films. It's, it's, it's a big, it's a big blender. So people can go through it and find interviews and all, all kinds of things, just exploring storytelling in general. Yeah, that's so cool. And it's good that you do. I mean, even though you're not really approaching those commercial films as much anymore, it is a wealth of different topics, which is kind of what I like to do on this show too. like have guests sort of choose things because right. that way, you know, you're not expecting every listener to get into every single episode or subject, but that way you are approaching um, a lot of new things. It's kind of like taking a different film survey course every week for me. I get to learn new things. Like I'm excited to learn from you today. So this will be great. Yeah. Yeah, It's been like a film school in a way, like just starting. I've learned so, so, so much more than I, than I, than I really knew like consciously about storytelling and filmmaking Mm-hmm. Um, so you just be, being able to talk about these things was a whole education. So, uh, I'm, I'm sure as a critic, you know, having to do something very yeah. similar, you know what I mean? <laughs> mm-hmm. Did you go to film school at all or study film in college? I did. Um, no, I, I originally was torn between acting and filmmaking and I couldn't decide my heart was leaning much more towards acting, however, sure. and I had taken a film elective um, course when I was in college. And then I, I really went all in on acting yeah. for many, many years. And then I was finding in the last, you know, eight or 10 years, you know, cause I had produced films and written mm-hmm. some films and done some directing as well. Um, and I was never really too, too interested in doing that. And I was kind of thinking of all kinds of different stories I could produce sure. and different ideas. Um, and then I started blogging like six years ago. So I had this other creative oh, energy uh, that I yeah. really didn't know how to channel. And, and then it kind of turned when the pandemic hit and starting the podcast, I kind of realized that this was this was it. You know, this was like another side to me that because uh, I'm have loved movies for so long that I just wanted to express my own point of views about it um, in, in this way. So it, it just, it just happened, but um, you know, that's a, a long way of saying no. Oh, you're <laughs> I didn't fine. go to, I didn't yeah, go to film and the school. Pandemic, but, yeah. I mean, as horrible as the pandemic was, it did give, I think a lot of people, including both of us, an opportunity to launch these other avenues of study. Um, I had been planning to do a podcast because my good friend Blake Howard kind of inspired me. He had um, the One Heat Minute podcast that I had guested on, and he's sort of a podcast producing guru. And so I'd been planning to give it a shot, but then the pandemic happened and it was sort of the excuse I needed to really launch and get access, luckily, to all these great minds that were home and bored and wanting to, you know, share their wisdom with me, thankfully, which I'm sure you relate to as well. So oh, for sure. Happy accident that way. Yeah. But I know that one of your all-time favorite filmmakers is the man that we're here to discuss today, an acclaimed actor, writer, director, producer. 
perhaps the godfather of independent filmmaking or the one whose methods certainly have inspired the generations that would follow. I'm talking about John Cassavetes, of course. We'll get deeper into the three films you've selected that seem to represent three distinct vital phases of his career in the form of the beginning with shadows, his critical heyday and middle with the Oscar-nominated A Woman Under the Influence and the end with Love Streams. We'll get into those in just a moment, but before we do that, I would love to know more about your relationship to and interest in John Cassavetes, how that all got started for you and what made and continues to make him and his work so compelling, do you think? It's a good, yeah, you know, it's a good question, but for me, when I was in acting, well, I had heard of him through, of course, I think, you know, and I, I know you could relate uh, with our love of Martin Scorsese. Yes. It's like when, when, you know, he's kind of like the perfect person to start with in film because he leads you to everybody else. Cause yeah. he knows everyone. <laughs> <laughs> yep. uh, and so when I was reading a biography on him, the one that you and I discussed uh, a journey that I believe is from 97, the late nineties. Um, yes. Cassavetes, of course, comes up on in that and how Scorsese uh, worked for him and that uh, Cassavetes was a, a mentor towards him. And so I, I had I had heard of him. And then when I was in acting school, a friend of mine told me how um, realistic the acting was in his movie. So that that yes. got me really interested because like, you know, they were talking about how um, it was it was so real that it was almost hard to believe that he that he captured it. And mm -hmm. so that truly piqued my interest. And so uh, my friend lent me shadows. And so so I saw shadows. However, I actually saw his last film first, which he hated and disowned. And it's not really his film. He took it over called Big Trouble. Oh, uh, for from Peter Falk, right? The Peter Falk, yeah. I mean, yeah. the reason he did it was because his health, this was just a few years, not long before he died and his uh, part of the reason why he took it, according to Ray Carney in his book, Cassavetes on Cassavetes anyways, is because it, it was it was a good payday. And I think he I think yeah. he really needed the money. Um, sure. Uh, you know, I, I, I don't want to say that that is the you know true, true answer. But uh, I, I think and, and he was not someone to to want to direct something for money he would act in things purely for money because oh, then sure. he would put those movie that money in the movies yeah but it was very unlike him to do that so uh you, you'd have to go check the book to to read more about why he chose to do that but anyways i saw that first and then oh, no. i saw uh shadows so the the two bookends and uh <laughs> and That's then from there quite the juxtaposition yes yeah i know because it's it's a weird way to go and then I had heard about the Criterion box set, the five films that they they have on the box set, which also has a fantastic documentary on yes. it called The Constant Forge. And it has a great little booklet with interviews. Um, and for whatever reason, I just thought I, I gotta I gotta get this. So I got it. I, I watched all the films, I devoured the special features, the book, and then I got Cassavetes on Cassavetes by Ray Carney. And I actually read again, devoured it. And for some reason I didn't finish it when I, this is 2006. I didn't finish it for some reason. And then I think I read more of it a few years later. And then in 2012, I have a weird memory for dates, 2012, I finished the whole thing. And ever since then, I still pick it up and, and just will read about uh, 
the making of a particular film or a time in his life because it's truly a great um, inspirational book. But I, you know, it really so is that, about creativity and just oh god, yeah, 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 and his attitudes on art and putting yeah. yourself out there and versus commerce and uh, men and women relationships. Like it, it yeah. really just runs the entire gamut. I love that you brought up uh, that you have a weird memory for dates because I have the same <laughs> thing. I've never like kept a diary, but if you tell me a movie, I can tell you like who I saw it with, where I saw it for me the first too. time, everything yeah. about that. So I can relate like my whole life to film pretty much. And so I loved when you were talking about the box set because um, I got it. Actually, my baccalaureate program was self-designed independent study where I like designed the whole curriculum. So for the 60s and 70s course that I designed, I went into Cassavetes for the like late 60s and my uh, professor that I used as a mentor happened to have this box set because it was pretty new at the time. And so yeah, brought it home, just like you said, devoured the entire thing. And Faces was the one that really stuck mm. out the most for me. But yeah, it was uh, awesome to hear that you actually went and bought it pretty much sight unseen. You'd only seen Shadows. Yeah, I don't I had only seen shadows and for some reason, which I really can't put into words, but I had heard about the box set. Yeah. Um, I was beginning, you know, in when I was 16, I started to collect physical media. So by this time I'm I'm close close to 20. I'm 2006, I was 19. So I was for, I was just really wanting to own a lot of uh these criterion in particular. And so I got the box set and um I just, I just devoured it. And, and, you know, I took more to some films. I took more to some of those films as opposed to others. Sure. But then of course, in later years, this is the, the, the genius of, of Cassavetes is that you can watch it once and hate it and then love it. And then be yeah, it depends where you then. are in life. Yeah. Yep. Because they're so, they're, they're so complicated and they they are so ambiguous and if you're not willing to really put the to put put yourself in it and what i mean by that is because he doesn't give you all the answers no and he leaves certain things open ending you have to sort of fill in the blanks in your own way and that can change over time so um i remember having a really hard time with faces when i first saw it and now i like I, I love the movie. Every time yeah, I see yeah. it, I I see so much more in it now that mm -hmm. I'm pretty much the age uh, of um, you know some of the characters in it. Sure. Like there's people in their 30s in it. Um, yeah. I, I can understand it so much more than you know than I could almost you know 17 years, 16, 17 years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, that you know, I just I constantly was going back to them, and I couldn't figure out how he was able to make a film that always felt so different. I was like, how, you know, cause you know, a lot of films are, uh, you know, you, you'll watch them and yeah, sure. I'll just like a, a good movie, a really good movie. I'll, I'll keep discovering things, but I had always felt as though I'd seen them before. And with Cassavetes, of course I knew I'd seen them before, but yet they just felt like I had never seen them before. Like I could barely remember certain things. Sure. And 
and I mean that in a, in a really good way. And I was like, mm-hmm. how, um, how did he, how does he do this? And how, why do other films not feel that way as much? And that is really when I started to look at them a lot, a lot closer and having the opportunity to interview people he worked with, like Leslie Hope, who was in Love Streams, and she's actually from here. So I was able to meet her and we talked for like, you know, five hours just, oh, wow. <laughs> and, um, I interviewed her uh, and she, she was, uh, cause she's a director as well. So she, and a right, uh, no, th- sorry, she's not a writer, but she's a director and actor. So she, she, uh, there was a lot of value in what she was saying. And, and, um, the, the, the picture I noticed that you, you posted earlier, uh, Steve Reich, the, uh, photographer, uh, interviewed him and and just you know just and of course the the books of Ray Carney are not just Cassavetes on Cassavetes but also the films of John Cassavetes the book on the making of shadows the BFI uh, film classics book um, all, his, his are his because no one was ever really interested in writing about Cassavetes like you know at the time when his films came out largely the critics hated them yeah um, they really baffled people oh yeah. yeah like pauline kale hated him like all mm-hmm. the, like but there were there were some who really liked him and the the occasional one did really well uh with critics and with the box office like a woman under the influence uh faces but most of them Mm-mm. got butchered and like husbands yeah yeah, husband. Yeah, that's an incredible story with, with husbands. Husbands, what? And that's you know, it's a tough watch. And it a is. lot of them didn't. A lot of them didn't do well. And it wasn't. It, it was only years later that people started to, to, to champion them. But Carney was the only one who wrote about them, really. And even mm. now, there's not that many people who who write about him the way in which Hitchcock is written about. And I'm not putting Hitchcock down. It's just that. When you watch a Hitchcock film, you you can take them apart and see how he did it. And you mm-hmm. can't do that with you can't do that with John. And I think people have a hard time writing about them because they're so fresh, they're so spontaneous, they're so complicated, um, they're so collaborative. You know, everyone who was there contributed so much that sometimes it's you know, sometimes he was the camera operator and then he would have someone else as a camera operator. Um, so they they he works so with people so it's it's hard to say hey john why did you you know zoom in there or 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 why is this person talking but yet you don't see them the 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 close-ups on the person who's listening and it's there 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 are so many reasons why that could be i mean you know but it all feels so beautifully put together and the rough you know, way in which he did it. And I think that's why people have a hard time writing about them, uh, which is a shame because I think there's, there's a lot to say even on a technical level. Cause even now people talk about the performances and the people, but there's a lot of really cinematic, you know, things he was, he was doing that. I, I, I hope people, you know, pay, start paying attention to down the road. Yeah. Basically it's like watching life being lived or unspooling in front of you as you watch. And they do feel very, very fresh. Like you you mentioned as you watch it, even if you'd seen it before, it seems like you can't remember things about it. And that's so true because each time you, it's almost like seeing a live play 
or mm. something. That's that's kind of the impression that they get is it's very lifelike and very immediate, like it's happening now. And I think that's very uniquely uh, John. But oh, the, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. But that, but at the same time, while also being incredibly cinematic, I mean, the oh, way yeah. he edited, the way he shot, the where he was choosing to focus on. Or, or where he's telling you not to focus. It's pretty, it's pretty inventive. And uh, yeah, so perhaps we'll get into that. John Cassavetes on filmmaking from Cassavetes on Cassavetes by Ray Carney. Quote, you name me a picture that people go to just to escape their feelings. And I'll name you a bad picture. People go to have their emotions aroused. Anyone who goes to a movie not to be emotionally affected is an asshole. They might as well dig a pit and jump in. I don't believe people do that. I think the escape theory is a lie. You go to Hitchcock to be frightened. You go to The Exorcist to be scared. You go to Orient Express to match wits with the smart guys to play detective. You go to Towering Inferno to see a fire. We're talking about emotions. No one goes just to sit there. You think a death wish isn't talking to your emotions? There's no reason why a serious film, one about life, can't be enjoyable, maybe even fun. Emotions can be very entertaining. I try to use them generously in my films. I could never make an unrealistic type of picture. I cannot work that way, but I admire people who can. I think Frank Capra is wonderful, and I think many of the early Lubitsch films were great. I even admire Dick Powell and his detective stories. He's wonderfully talented in those areas, and it's a good thing he can make that kind of picture so that we can have a little variety. It would be awfully somber if people made only realistic films. However, that's the best way I can work. And if there's no market for it, then I'll pack up as it's the only kind of film I am interested in. I'd rather work in a sewer than make a film I don't love. If I directed a picture like Return of the Jedi or even worked on one, I would faint I'd faint and never get up again. I'd be so ashamed. If I did the Towering Inferno, it'd be all black leader, nothing. I'd get sick. I'd take the insurance money. I couldn't do it. I'm not interested in starting fires. I like to feel pain through what really causes pain. I don't want to frighten people by showing them tragedy. I've never seen an exploding helicopter. I've never seen anybody go and blow somebody's head off. So why should I make films about them? But I have seen people destroy themselves in the smallest way. I've seen people withdraw. I've seen people hide behind political ideas, behind dope, behind the sexual revolution, behind fascism, behind hypocrisy. And I've myself done all these things. In our films, what we're saying is so gentle. It's gentleness. We have problems, terrible problems, but our problems are human problems, end quote. 
Well, the best way probably to begin is at the beginning with the film often described by John Cassavetes and in interviews as his favorite, most likely because it was a two-year process of trial and error involving improvisation, then eventually a full script, problems with audio that necessitated hiring lip readers to figure out what the actors were saying <laughs> for looping purposes, and oh, way God. too much footage because they printed every take because nobody was on set to like jot down when he said yeah. print. I'm talking about Shadows, the 1959 independent film release about three African-American siblings in New York including two that essentially passes white and what happens when one, the sole, women, the sole woman in the trio falls in love with a young white man who doesn't know her background starring Ben Carruthers, Layla Goldoni and Hugh Hurd. Let's talk about shadows. So do you remember when you first saw this one? Yes. So that was, uh, that was also yes, the first one. Or yeah, the well, after I, the fall. Te yeah. technically it's the first because I mean, Big Trouble. Some people wouldn't even consider that as movie, but yeah, anyway, that's I mean, true. Let let let's say yeah, the second viewing, and I saw it in yeah. So I was nineteen, two thousand six, and what I remember was liking it, but not mm -hmm. being like Bold not over. being blown away by yeah. it as I was not only from his some of his other movies, but from other you know, by other filmmakers. I agree. Well. Yep. Um, and, you know, I've had all kinds of, you know, it, again, like with, with Cassavetes, you have to be, you have to be ready for mm -hmm. your eyes to be open. You can't be, I remember Leslie Hope said, you can't, it's the, not the kind of movies you could be eating popcorn with, you know, like they're, yeah, yeah. They require, and, and Shadows has more of a simplicity about it uh, compared to his others, even though it, it there is complicated portrayals uh mm -hmm. but you know you can never really know why sometimes you don't take to it one in one viewing and then you do in another but what i remember was not you know liking it but not truly loving it and every time i've seen it see now i i suppose i know you know that i can't be sort of ready to passively take this film in Mm -hmm. that this director is going to show me something that is that where I kind of know where it's going to go. So that way I can coast because you can't, you can't do that. So when I watch it now, every time I see it, I'm, I'm, I, I love it more and more, but I've had other viewings like when, you know, let's say 10 years ago or 12 years ago, or I would put it on and, and be like, meh about it. And again, I, I perhaps I was in a mood to just coast. Um, mm -hmm. So if you're in the so in the right frame of mind, certainly, um, I I you know watching it again before talking to you, I truly loved it. But yeah, that was my first feeling was like, it, I like it, but I must have liked it enough to want to go and spend. I don't know what the box set cost then. <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, to get that box set. So luckily I did. But yeah, that was my first experience was like it, but don't love it. Didn't love it. That was me too. I remember, I think, being more impressed from a stylistic standpoint. And also, I loved the beat generation. This was around the time that I got into Kerouac and reading all yeah. those books. And so, and I think when this played eventually, they did it with a double bill of like Pull My Daisy. And so they were really kind of going for it. Yeah. So I think uh, the first time I watched it, I just appreciated it on that level, but was kind of meh. 
Second time, I liked it a lot more. This time, I have to say, I wasn't meh and I didn't love it. I'm kind of in the middle. I think it's very good, but I don't respond to it nearly as much as the other ones. Maybe that's because now I'm in my 40s. And so I'm so far away from the age of some of the Uh, characters and the plights and uh, kind of the, I mean, pretentiousness of some of these uh, characters and uh, what they're going for. And, but I mean, we're always going to remember, especially if you're a creative individual wanting to be creative on your own terms and wanting to find love on your own terms and how to do that and walk that line and navigate what you're willing to accept or not. So it's, you know, kind of timeless in that sense, but it also depends, like we were saying, probably on your age and where you're at in life. Yes. No, totally. And you can look at Cassavetti's movies that way, like every movie he made, you know, you could, he's, he's working not, not necessarily, well, I don't want to say necessarily out of his own problems, but, but sort things of. that are, yeah. I mean, I mean, sure enough there, I mean, he would say that he knows it's worth, it's worth making a film yeah. when, when it's something that truly baffles him and he wants to, he wants to, yeah, he wants to explore urgency. it. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And so if you look at like shadows, all these characters in their, are in their twenties and Cassavetes is also very close to 30 when he's making it. You mm-hmm. look at faces, same thing. These guys, people and men and women are mid, mid to late thirties, like John. And then yep. when he movie, they're always around his age. Uh, so he's always, he's always working out, you know, the people he knows and himself and, 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 and not only that, but just, just different Americans in, in general, like, you know, you look at, you look at a woman under the influence. I mean, Peter Falk, the character is like this reserved conservative guy though. He was that, that guy was not like John at all. And and sometimes I get into not necessarily arguments with, with people online about this, but, you know, they, they get the impression, oh, oh, because he was always casting the same people that they're just making stuff about themselves. But that's that's, you know, sure that John is in those movies, but he was talking about just ordinary, you know, people from from all you know kinds of different realities. And um, but yeah, I mean, Shadows is really like this coming of age story about these as you said the sister and the two brothers and they're half black Mm -hmm. um and half white and living in new york and you what's interesting is that it's 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 not a film that's necessarily about uh race relations even though that that's a part of it uh because there's only a reference to uh uh racism in it a couple of times uh, but it's actually really about this um, coming of age between these three siblings and how all their problems are so individual. Mm-hmm. And and actually, you could say that about all of Cassavetti's films, he doesn't have a supporting character there just to push a, a story forward, like you see in a lot of um, conventional filmmaking. So like uh, reacting off of the main character's problems, everybody's problem is uh, very individual and so you have you know lelia the young woman is does clearly is not happy with where she comes from and she wants to fit in amongst these intellectual types and so she's put and john was interested and you see that in faces as well and people who 
wear masks as we all do and and really don't don't are, are trying not to be themselves and trying to be some someone else um and out of an out of an insecurity and that and that's universally true from every everybody we all present um what we're comfortable with about ourselves in different situations and and you'll notice you know that she's i remember once someone said that they they felt the acting wasn't very good and i'm like no but you you missed the point was that the reason she's being over the little uh, over the top is because she's putting on all these airs yeah you know, she doesn't sort know of, yep who exactly. she is or no no and she's trying to figure out where she belongs in uh, the world yes yeah absolutely yeah. yeah and and so that that is her you know dilemma and then ben is this you know uh, it's interesting you brought up kerouac because Whereas the 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 beat generation, they they seem to be, I don't know, I don't know a lot about it, but that that was more of an embracing of like the the coolness and the jazz. Whereas John was more, if you look at Ben, Ben is sort of putting those things on, and John is yeah. sort of saying, well, this is an act. <laughs> yeah, you know, again I'm... with a sense of mask, and he's the sunglasses, the leather jacket, and the hanging the picking up different women and and he's kind of aimlessly walking around town but it's because he doesn't know how to be himself and he doesn't know he doesn't he lacks a sense of direction yeah and you can kind of see that right at the beginning of the movie uh the way that the uh, male characters are when they're trying to pick up these women and one of them is super hostile to another woman or they seem to be very combative Mm -hmm. and um Mm -hmm. it's like they're just trying on um you know masculine and feminine traits almost that they maybe learned from film um, you know, yeah. from Marlon Brando or James Dean or the people of that period. And kind of by the time exactly. this was getting made, uh, the beat stuff had become commercialized. And so, right. you know, I think there was the line, like by the time they made Route 66, it was uncool, basically. <laughs> and so, yeah, so there was the thing of um, just posing or posers. And uh, so, yeah, these people, uh, they don't really know where they fit or how to play these roles, especially um, in this case, you're dealing with issues of race and trying to figure out how to pass or not. There's also good questions about selling out or whether or not you should be um, artistically flexible with the the one guy not wanting to introduce like a girly show, essentially, um, as he's gonna do his music and ready to walk but they need the money because he has to pay the bills so he's kind of at that age where you know this temperamental thing was probably cute when he was in his early 20s but now it's yeah. you know he's the yeah. oldest sibling yeah and that, and that and i i i'm only speculating but that's probably very much where john was yes. at this point uh creatively he was very successful on on television and in, and in some films he had just done edge of the city but he was not happy creatively and he started teaching and that's how Shadows was born. A lot of these people were his students and, and that, yeah. and that very much is Hugh, the, the oldest brother who is creatively frustrated. He's playing 
you know, he's not happy with the gigs he's playing and his, and his manager Rupert is trying to get him better, better, uh, better uh, uh, gigs in, in different cities. And so, and so all of, you know, John very much didn't work from plot. He worked from character and the plot would come from that. And I think that's why his characters are all so distinctive and complicated and uh, they really pop out and he's not just, showing you some of their colors early on and then you're going to kind of know how they're going to react i mean layla for example is putting on all these airs but then later on when the scene where she loses her virginity uh Mm -hmm. she's so vulnerable and and upset and we see this the mask begin to fall and then later when that other guy comes to take her out and she's so mean to him oh my god like she's i'm not ready yes (laughs) i know how long do you think he was in the apartment waiting for her a couple hours yeah it was something like that yeah yeah Yeah, i love when the brother's like i would have just walked away at this point (laughs) yes yeah like you can't blame them so yeah they're going through it basically and you brought up this is where john was at the time especially with johnny staccato uh, yes, there yes. is a really funny anecdote in Cassavetes on Cassavetes where he got offered that role and was like, I'm an artist. I'm not doing television. What am I, a deodorant salesman? I'm not doing this. And this was yeah. at the time, I think Jenna Rollins was like eight months pregnant. So he hung yeah. up on the guy and he said, you know, to her, like, am I crazy? I'm not doing this. And she said, yeah. no, you're absolutely right. And her just backing him up made him feel better. And then he just immediately knew no i will do it and so he got yeah. on the phone and he said because she did that uh and had his back that he would go ahead and do the tv show and i loved that yeah and he was also 50 grand in debt you can imagine yes. from shadows so oh you my god imagine in the late you know what that would be worth now of his own money so he mm-hmm. really and and his career because he wasn't acting no, when he was doing shadows now, and you know, as an actor myself, once you stop for a few years, people will forget you. So he yeah. was, you know, he would have been crazy not to have done it, you know. Yeah. And and it's actually the 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 episodes he directed, and and even some of the ones he didn't. There's some. I I mean, I love that series. I know he hated it, but <laughs> I've never fun. seen it. I'll have to look. Oh, for it's it. great. It's yeah. so. I mean, I mean, yeah. So, some of them are corny, but uh, he directed some. And the ones he directed are really, really good. Yeah, it's really cool to see him in television. I also, of course, love the episode he did of Columbo with Peter Falk. And Peter is going to be in our next film we're talking about. So Roger Ebert wrote that the key to understanding John Cassavetti's work is to realize that his wife, Jenna Rollins, is always playing her husband. In a way, this reminds me of a Fellini interview I read where he admitted that his wife and muse, Julieta Masna's romantic striving leads are him, not her as well. These thoughts came up as I revisited the draining, gripping, fascinating character drama, quite possibly the filmmaker's greatest work, A Woman Under the Influence, starring Rollins and Peter Falk from 1974, chronicling an intensely dysfunctional, obsessive, yet loving marriage between the manic Rollins, a wife and mother, and her husband Falk. What's particularly intriguing about this film, which garnered Rollins an Oscar nod, is how for the first 75% of it, we're led to believe it's mainly her character with a dominant mental health issue. But then we begin to reassess and re-examine Falk's Nick, 
in that final hard to watch act. Here's John on the differences between Jenna Rollins and the character she plays in A Woman Under the Influence from Cassavetes on Cassavetes by Ray Carney. Quote, if you knew Jenna, she's so unlike that thumb flicking raspberry throwing girl. In real life, Jenna is as calm and composed as Mabel is nervous and troubled. By comparison, I myself am half mad. It surfaces at the least expected moments. I can usually tell it with my own life when the insanity is going to surface. I think it comes from loneliness, our own dedication to what we're doing, whether we're laborers or whether we're white collar workers or college students or whatever. I think it's the promise of two people getting together and having a love affair in a one-on-one relationship where two people get together that may not have that much in common because one is a man and one is a woman. One day, I think that marriage is the best life I've ever had. The next minute, I feel like killing myself or someone else feels like killing me. Life for me is difficult and full of mysteries as to what will happen next or what I'm going to feel. Half of life is taken up by unpredictable moods. This particular woman isn't really mad, but frustrated beyond imagination. She doesn't know what to do, and she is socially and emotionally inept. Everything she does is an expression of her own individuality, but she doesn't know how to interact with others. She's like me in this respect, yet it is only by interacting, by engaging in some sort of competition with others, that she feels alive. End quote. So let's get into it. What are your thoughts on a woman under the influence? Well, I like, I like, firstly, I, I like the way Ebert put that because yeah. he's, he, he actually is, is, I, I think I really agree with him because uh, a lot, a lot of, a lot of people see this film in, in different ways, which I think is part of its genius. I mean, they think it's about mental health. They think it's about alcoholism. They think it's about yeah. a man abuse, uh, uh, controlling his wife. Uh, and, and those, all, all those things are true, but really it's about, it's like this love story. It's about mm-hmm. these two people who love each other so much, but just cannot quite get, get together out. or see yeah. eye to eye on things. And in a way, all of John's films are about people not being able to listen and communicate. John Cassavetes on the difference between men and women from Cassavetes on Cassavetes by Ray Carney. Here's John, quote, Jenna in this film became a figure for the women's movement as an example of what was happening to women. But I would think that women's lib would not like the film because I really think there are basic differences between men and women, a biological difference, a sexual difference, a lifestyle difference, a training difference. People can say, no, there isn't a difference. But I have two daughters and a son, and I see the difference. The film really shows, beyond any other movie I've ever seen, the real solid differences between men and women. Women are more receptive by nature than a man is. I don't know whether it's a conditioning or whatever. It's an actuality, anyway. I've seen my daughter, when she was very young, practice on me, practice seeing herself through a man's eyes. I mean, no one told her to do that. I don't see boys doing that. They don't practice being. They just grow up. 
and they are either something that pleases them or nothing that pleases them. I don't think that the question of identity is so strong with a man as it is with a woman. Most men don't go around worrying if they're good enough, and women do. When a woman commits herself to a man, she doesn't quite know what to expect. She can be almost anything that the man wants her to be. If she's deeply in love, she wants to please him. Mabel had a sense of worthlessness. She assumed the personality she thought she should have, wanting to be a good mother and a good wife. I watch lots of women pick up their children from the bus stop like Mabel does, and my heart leaps. I want those other women to talk to her, tell her the time at least, end quote. My, but my first, yeah, this was one that I was, you know, blown away by, particularly the acting. I mean, the scene that the, what the most famous scene in it, which is when she, when General Liz begins to break down and then they commit her to a, a mental institution for six months, that, you know, I don't think I've seen better acting in a movie in my life. I mean, it's so it's, it's again, it's, it looks like they're just losing their mind. And yeah. I know that Peter Falk actually at a certain point thought General Rollins was, I mean, she's so, she's so, so real and, and Falk as well. It just, I mean, he's scary in it. He's, he's so aggressive. Like he looks like he's a bomb. That's just about to debt to go off and everybody else. I mean, he, he has his mother in there uh, <laughs> playing, playing, the mother of Peter Falk, and she's um, she's so fantastic. Cassavetes on acting from Cassavetes on Cassavetes by Ray Carney. Here's John quote: "I really believe almost anyone can act. How well they can act depends on how free they are, and whether the circumstances are such that they can reveal what they feel. I don't think there's any great trick." to my directing. I just get people I like, people I'm interested in, and talk to them on the basis of their being people rather than actors. End quote. I, uh, you know, this is one I've seen again and again. I remember when I talked to Leslie Hope, um, she said she's seen it four times and I felt like saying that's it. <laughs> you know? Yeah, uh, yeah it's a no, hard I love one it. to like watch a bunch though, for sure. Mm. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah you yeah. know, I, I, I think, yeah, in a way it is. But, you know, the one thing that people I know John Voigt said this and I agree with him is that his some of his movies are really funny. Like there's a lot of there's some shockingly funny stuff going on in this one, especially with yeah. Falk and his reactions like across the table with the two of them. Oh my it's God, crazy. It's so good. Yes. It's so good. But I was finding I was laughing watching you know, these three and love streams as well. Uh, Sh Shadows does, it doesn't have much humor. Not that I'm saying it needed to, but uh, women under the influence, love streams, Minnie and Mouskowitz, uh, husbands. I mean, a, a lot of them are, have so much humor in them that I, I think this is something that is, is worth mentioning. And it comes out of these embarrassing, awkward situations. I love when I, am embarrassed to even look at what I'm seeing. Not because yes. it's bad, but because the situations are so... You're just so, so embarrassed for them. You can barely, like, stand it. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. And, and you know, this character that Falk plays, Nick, 
Longetti is he's very reserved. He's he's conservative. He's only comfortable in a certain temperament and what he calls like normal conversation, you know, going on. Yeah, with, uh, he has to control it. Yes. He has to control everything. He 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 is afraid of emotions and feelings. Yes. And this woman who's he's he loves and and obviously he loves that she's eccentric and a bit kooky. Um when they're alone, that's fine. But when people are around, like you see with the spaghetti scene early on, mm-hmm. um, and she begins to uh, you know, get up and try to get people to sing. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and dance you know, and, yeah. and dance and, and, and he shoots her down and he really humiliates her. Um, and I'm fascinated by him because I don't like, I've, I've known a lot of people like that and who just are so uncomfortable seeing certain emotions and they need everything to be quote unquote normal. And I think what John often is saying in his movies when you're seeing this more eccentric behavior is that what exactly is normal behavior? Just like he would say with his one of his, his last film that we're talking about next love streams, I'm almost not crazy. So in other words, we're basically all crazy, you know, like, but we have to sort of embrace that. <laughs> mm-hmm. And it's hard for people to do that. We don't see ourselves as crazy, but we, we, we are we all are really kooky and um, you really see that in this film because he's so, I mean, when you think when, you know, like Ebert says, like, it, like, I think people think like, Oh, she's the one who has mental health problems, but really what does she do? That's so when you really think about it, she doesn't that's actually true. really do anything. That is, that is that, that is concerning. Um yeah, she's eccentric. She's kooky. She's inappropriate. She makes people feel uncomfortable. Even when the the guy, the party later where Mario Gallo comes. And again, he's like this stiff guy <laughs> and he's so uncomfortable leaving his kids there at the party and they're doing the Swan Lake and, 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 and all this and stuff. And yeah, she's, she's weird. <laughs> yeah. The level of intensity. Crazy. <laughs> yeah. That thing of um, there's a, a joke, like, is it better to love too much or too little? This is a woman who loves too much, like exactly. with every fiber of her being and she wants love. She craves love. It's also a movie about like who you let into your weird little world. Because, um, you know, like you pointed out, Falk is okay with her. You know, she is his sun, the moon, the stars, essentially, when they're alone or when it's just the two of them, like he wants to be there for date night. But he's almost jealous when they show like concern after she does get committed or uh, when they're there, like he starts to see them through. Uh, or see his wife through their eyes, I should say. And that's when he starts to second guess himself and his own reactions as somebody who equally loves with like every fiber of his being and loves too much, but also his own background being Italian and his stuff with his mother. Like we start to (laughs) see more where he's coming from. And yeah, these are just people who don't know where to put all of that energy and all that uh, craving for love or how exactly. to view it um, through society or how to uh, negotiate that, I think. No, absolutely right. And you, you, you brought up a good point, which is that she loves too much. And that is so true. I mean, 
like the opening scene, which is so funny where she's oh with she's her mother. The, yes. Yeah, she's her real packing. mother. Yes. That's her real mother. Yeah. She's packing like luggage because a bike. Her, her yeah. Kids. Yeah. Her kids and, are like, going to go stay. all the time. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Her kids are going to go stay with the mother and she's so high strung and intense and has to do everything so perfectly. Um, and yeah, it's because she's just like, she's, she has so much love in her that she puts just everything into, um, those children, which is really good. Uh, but again, it's just, it's, it's way, it, it's too much, uh, in and a then, sense. And it leads to her insecurities. You know, you see yeah. later, she's even asking the kids, am I crazy? Do you think I'm crazy? <laughs> you know, after that scene, I'm glad you brought that up because, you know, we see her so frantic and kind of hopping around the yard and doing all these things. And then she goes inside the house and just the deafening silence and her not knowing what to do with yeah, herself, that's a good point. especially yeah. when Nick isn't going to come home and then she has oh, to go to a yeah. bar. Like she that's doesn't the drinking know starts, yeah. Yeah, what to do. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's true. I mean, because, you know, she's a um, calm down. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's, a, you know, the interesting thing about John is that he's never really interested in people's financial struggles. Like you never really know. Yeah. Like that's you, true. You, get, you get, you get a strong sense that, that they, that, you know, they're, they're, they're middle to lower class, even in shadows that we just discussed. You don't know how these three siblings are surviving. You get the impression that they're in a small place that they're sharing and that Hugh is the one taking care of everybody, but he's, he's always in, he's much more interested in the um, emotional concerns. And uh, that's a good point. Like, yeah, when she's alone, she doesn't know what to do. She doesn't have a job. These kids are everything. And now her husband's not coming home. And then boom, she starts, she starts uh, the drinking and then goes out and mm-hmm. <laughs> brings this guy over, uh, which is, you know, such a crazy, crazy scene. Um, yeah, and then the next day starts talking to him like it's Nick, essentially, yeah, like partly. Yeah. And then it's also Mabel Longetti, Nick Longetti and get out. And yeah, yeah. it's a very um, confusing, confusing sequence. Yeah, yes. well, like, and I think that that has more to do with with again, you see, he, it's not like he's exploring alcoholism or mental health. No, I mean, he, but it does. Yeah. Yeah. Sir, you know, you you you're like okay, a little bit. Yeah. Is that is that because is that from the alcohol that she mm-hmm. doesn't even know what her husband sure. is right yes. now? Um, you don't, you don't know. I mean, clearly she has problems, but yeah. you, you know, he didn't do, as he said, he didn't go into mental hospitals and do no. research. Like, no, it's just, just about these people. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. He just, he just had an understanding though, a real understanding about, about what made people come alive and their struggles and problems. and um yeah but it's it's so so good i you know i'm, I'm not surprised ray carney mentioned this like on a commercial level this film and gloria which he did later were the were two of his biggest commercial hits and in, and in a way i'm not and carney pointed pointed it out it's because it's actually it's there it's actually a very direct film like everybody pretty much says what they mean even though even if what they mean oh is that's like, a good point yeah you know it, it's not <laughs> like it's not like as as um it's not as though like in husbands, no one says what they mean. And I think no. audiences have a harder time because they're like, well, what's going on here? Uh, so you have to, you have to kind of really lean into it and grapple yeah. with it. 
But here, <laughs> Nick and Mabel always say what they mean, even though what even if what they mean, particularly Nick, is so out of a place of innocence or ignorance. Um, like in the spaghetti scene where he's talking about how there's so many, he's talking about how he's seeing all these babies outside. He's like, I go two, three years, I never see any babies. Suddenly I'm seeing all these babies. And he says, it must be something in the air. You know? Yes. <laughs> it's just like, and everyone's like, what? Like, it's, but again, like he says, <laughs> stream what he of needs. consciousness. Yeah, exactly. And he's telling her what to do. And she's, she even says to him when he wants to commit her, look, you just made a jerk yourself. <laughs> I just love the way they put everything in this innocent way you know from cassavetes on cassavetes by ray carney here's john cassavetes talking about writing quote when i first start writing there's a sense of discovery in some ways it's not work it's finding some romance in the lives of people you get fascinated with their lives if they stay with you then you want to do something make it into a movie put it on in some way it was that which propelled us to keep on working at a woman under the influence. The words kind of spell out the story in a mysterious way. I deal with the characters as any writer would deal with a character. There are certain characters that you like, that you have feeling for, and other characters stand still. So you work until you have all the people in some kind of motion. Making a film is a mystery. If I knew anything about men and women to begin with, I wouldn't make it because it would bore me. I really feel that the script is written by what you can get out of it and how much it means to you. What the film is about is not deliberate in the original intention. I mean, I know that the subject is going to be a family, but I don't know what my initial motivations are. You're interested in where you're going. The idea of taking a laborer and having him married to a wife whom you can't capture is really exciting. I don't know how you work on that. So I write. I'll do it any way I can. I'll hammer it out. I'll kick it out. I'll beat it to death any way you can get it. I don't think there are any rules. The only rules are that you do the best you can. And when you're not doing the best you can, then you don't like yourself. And that's very individual with everyone. End quote. But the, you can say that a, uh, in all of John's films, these characters, particularly this one in Love Streams, um, they get into these situations that are just over their head. Like this guy, Nick, you know, to, to put his wife into a mental ops hospital and then have to take care of three kids on his own. This guy cannot take care of three kids. <laughs> so he gives a beer. He takes him to the beach when it's freezing. Like he doesn't know what he's doing, you know, and, no. and often in movies, characters know what they're doing. And this is what John didn't like. Um, uh, about uh, more conventional filmmaking because people in life, you know, we're winging it, you know, even as much as we may not want to admit it. And that's what he's doing. He's trying to figure out what the hell to do, how to get his wife and family back together. Yeah, 100%. And these are the, the issues that fascinated him, especially at this point with his marriage. He'd been staying at home. There were questions. Uh, he said, I was the wife for a little bit while Jenna was oh, right. the breadwinner. Yeah. And uh, wanted to do something from the woman's point of view, give her a yeah. role because he had done like husbands and some of these more masculine uh, films for a little bit. 
So yeah, right. it's, it's just such a stellar movie. I would say if you ha- if you're listening and you haven't watched it, go ahead and watch it. But yeah. don't think you can be passive. This isn't one to watch and like be on your phone the whole time. You have to kind of oh, commit no. to it yeah. and meet it halfway. Yes. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Our final film is also John's final independent work and one that was completely new to me that I do believe stands among his best movies loosely based or inspired by the 1980 play of the same name by Ted Allen. 1984's Love Streams finds Cassavetes and Rollins acting on screen together. And here they play two middle-aged siblings. He, an alcoholic Bob Fosse, Hugh Hefner-like womanizing writer who is constantly looking to uncover the secrets of young women that he hopes to bed and write about, and she, a divorcee with a history of depression, coming together unexpectedly as they're both at respective low points in their personal lives, the film received the prestigious Golden Bear from the Berlin International Film Festival. I know you've interviewed one of the actresses from the movie, Robert, so I will be sure to link to that when this episode posts on my Patreon. But why don't you let us know what you found out about Love Streams and take it away. Well, you know what? the uh, when We were talking earlier about remembering dates. This is actually one I don't, re- you know, I can't remember my first viewing. Oh, that's okay. And- and I think it's because this was a film that was hard to find for a long time. It, uh, was. it was. Yes. Yeah. Like Criterion. I have it. The Criterion yep. put it out in 2014. Mm-hmm. But I can't. There was a video store in Toronto that had like a bad copy of it. Uh, I don't remember the first time I saw it, but I've seen it. I've seen it a number of times. And Peter Falk felt this was John's best film. And oh, wow. Yeah. And I, I would re- I remember I so- told Leslie this as well, because she, you know, because it she didn't she didn't realize how highly people thought of it. And then I, mm-hmm. I, I honestly would put it in, in right up there in the top three or four of uh, his films. Yes, but I would definitely say top three. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is more of, you know, you started to see from the killing of a Chinese bookie to this film all the films he did is were the more of the loner characters where he, yep. he was moving away from like the married couple or the relationships um people who were loners and the in here we have two people are the focus which is jenna Rollins as sarah and him as robert Harmon cassavetes and they're they're you don't even know their brother and sister and still halfway through the movie when she shows up at his house yeah um and but i've always been fascinated particularly also just by his performance mm-hmm. um i think he's just i mean he was such a good actor and john voigt did the stage play uh and he was supposed to do the movie and steve reich who i mentioned earlier who was the photographer on the plays um he actually interviewed John Voigt I don't know when exactly and I I was fortunate enough that he let me listen to the um the interviews and he asked John what happened with the the movie because apparently Voigt there's all these different things that Voigt wanted to direct it because yeah. of John's health and he he or or you know he wasn't because John was sick he wasn't sure if if he should do it and stuff like that but anyways what he told 
uh, Steve was that, uh, no, he just thought that John should do it. <laughs> so whether, <laughs> whether he's telling that, that the truth or not, and also because he felt that he had done it as the play, he wasn't as interested in doing it in, for the film, which is kind of an unusual answer. I'm not, you know, you never know sometimes if people are, they may mean one thing one day, but maybe they meant something else. But I take his word for it. He felt John should do it. And maybe he was right because John was so good in it. And he, John said that he was, didn't even want to do it because he felt that the guy was nothing like him. And, yeah, and he had to he talks re- about that. Yeah. Yeah. Because he was not, you know, the guy's a womanizer and John was not a womanizer. No. He actually, he actually didn't like people who were. He was, he was a little conservative yeah. in that sense. Like he ran into Kazan once at a party and he loved Kazan, but because Kazan was with three women, he was like, I don't want to talk to him. <laughs> yeah. You know, so, and he was with Jenna Rollins since they were like in their 20s. You know, he was yes. a one woman kind of, he was very in love with her. Um, so he didn't really want to play the guy. And and I'm glad he did because he's so he just brings that cackling sense of humor to it. But at the same time, just that intense, serious loner, this writer, and who's who's living with these prostitutes and paying them to live with him. And also all of his relationships are transactional. They are. Yes. He can't, he again, this is the struggle of not being, you know, it's as John said, character, all his films are about love, either uh, having it or or needing it or not being able to get it in some way, shape or form. And so this is a guy who clearly is um, afraid of it. You know, he's divorced. You find out that he has this child, Abel, uh, uh, Abby, sorry, who comes later uh, into his life. And and so he he just he's self-destructive. He doesn't, he doesn't seem to like himself very much. And again, like with Nick, he has to take care of this kid for a couple of days because the mother and the husband were going out of town and he it's way over his head. I mean, as soon as the, she, she comes over with the child and I love how John actually like just, you know, everyone else is talking, but the shot is only on that boy. Um, which is a great choice. And you saw that in the first scene as well with the divorce proceedings with Jenna Rollins and Seymour Casal. There are certain moments where he's only shooting the little girl having to experience this, the divorce with the parents. So he's, you know, he's focusing on children having to uh, see their families ripped apart. But right away, he's like, you know, she comes over with the son and, and she's like, this is your son. And he barely says hello. And then he's like, he's just about to write a check. Like that's like, he just thinks that she's there for money. And he has to take care of this kid. And, and this monologue he has about, and this was something that I never really nailed down until my last view. I shouldn't say nailed down, but just what I took from it was that he says to the little kid, I'm only interested in young people, kids and old people because they don't need anything. And if you look at the way the, the people he got along with was like that older woman, Diane Abbott's mother, like later in the, the film, he's like, yes. yeah, he's like partying with her and he starts to get along with this kid. And I think what he and he comes alive with those two people more like with everybody else. He's sort of very serious and withdrawn. And with them, he's much more lively. And I and I think the fact that he said that, I think what he means is that, you know, anywhere from childhood to being uh, an old person our lives get complicated and it's that's hard that's hard for me to be around yeah 
he, he, you know, he doesn't make that simple. It's usually the characters begin to change perhaps right at the end of the film, as opposed to halfway through. Uh, but he, he has all of those things. It's not, it's not as though they're, you know, they're original, but it's, it's not as though they're totally out of this world, uh, you know, but yeah, I mean, where am I going with this? I mean, there's so much to say with, I mean, it's such a complicated portrait of these people in their fifties. You are yeah. really lost and Sarah is, as well with this divorce. And she's like an extent extension of, uh, of uh, Mabel from a woman under the influence. She loves so much that she goes to funerals and hospitals to cheer people up. I mean, that is so funny and yes. eccentric. <laughs> it's the weirdest. Like at first I was like, what is, what is she talking about? Is this some yeah. kind of a, a charity she's involved with? But no, yeah. it's just a woman who doesn't know what to do or um, it's just like yeah. Mabel. Yep, yeah, exactly. Just that was love. the beauty of seeing these back to back was that I had actually never really noticed that. Like yeah, love is the driving force. That is a really good observation. It seems yeah. to be kind of um, a different side of the same character a little bit. Oh, yeah. 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 I mean, I, I hadn't really dawned on me, but you, you, you know, she, she just cannot. She's just cannot fathom what is happening in her life, this loss of her family and her daughter's going through puberty and turning on her which is you know common and natural and mm -hmm. uh, husband doesn't want to be with her anymore and it's always the same thing it's like you're it's just people thinking that she's too much you know yeah. which is a shame because you know yeah or the manipulation <laughs> or not sure how to um digest or to be around her like you see yeah. uh, the seymour cassell who's playing her ex um, you know, at first he's anti her and you can see he's maybe manipulating the daughter a certain way to say some things about her, even though, you know, who, who as a child would want to go all, to all these funerals and hospitals and do all of these <laughs> things, especially with people you don't even know. Um, but then later when she gets a phone call from the Cassell character and it's like, he wants her back for a moment or, yeah. you know, and it's just characters who don't know how to process love. And, um, you know, I think the fact that John really didn't fit in with this character actually works as a strength because I think if John Voight had played him, it would maybe be slightly more expected. You would imagine someone with the um, looks of John yeah. Voight, maybe yeah being more desirable to all these young women without being an author who is wielding his money around or hiring uh, hookers or were, you know, are they escorts, like just showgirls? Like we don't really know what this whole thing is, but it's very right. transactional. And with yeah. John Voight, you could maybe see him pulling this off a little more, whereas there's just such a loneliness and an awkwardness of this yeah. man who goes like in the opening sequence when we see him you don't know what the hell is going on because he goes from one woman to the next woman to the next woman and it's you're beautiful what's your name what's your name and it's like he's coming on to every single woman and uh he's sort of it seems like he's doing as my male friends would probably have said back in the our 20s like he's playing the odds you know, he's uh, complimenting <laughs> every woman to see which one is going to, you know, bite or something, right, even right. though it's not like them out at a nightclub. This is a guy who is famous. He's using money. He's using all of those 
um, things at his disposal to get what he wants. And uh, yeah, it's, it's a really weird turn. It's, I think, an interesting one for John because it is so unlike him. And that's what makes it work very well. It's sort of like when you see Roy Scheider in all that jazz and you're like, wait, this is the oh, same yeah. guy who played, yeah. you know, um, in uh, Jaws or yeah. Sorcerer, essentially. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good. Yeah, that's a really, really good point. And I uh, I, I like that you brought up the opening scene because I, I often Cassavetes starts his films on on an abrupt opening where, yeah. you you know, it's not that we're like he is introducing everybody in different ways, but they like always the just, <laughs> yeah, they start in like the middle of something and it begins with him holding this little girl and he's arguing with this woman. And then so you think, OK, that's his daughter and that yeah. she's his wife. And then nope. you find out, no, that's his that's his assistant. And yep. she's this the daughter who the daughter of the uh, of the assistant. So he did that in a lot of his movies. And and I, re, you know, and he's also beginning to I shouldn't say beginning because he also did it in an opening night was he's using uh, surrealism like those dream sequences. Yeah, that's true. Uh, and, yeah, and, and like opera the and yeah, <laughs> or that Fellini-esque thing at the pool, the make them yes. laugh moment that, uh, oh, I love um, that. if you have the Criterion disc as we do, I'm advising you to watch, uh, my friend Sheila O'Malley did this really great essay on the, oh. on the disc, which is oh, all wow. about that Jenna your... Rollins oh, and great. her performances in the Cassavetes films. And she zeroes in on that make them laugh sequence in yeah. a really beautiful way. So uh, yeah. if you have access, listen to Sheila because she's like the best mind on acting, I think, right now. So Oh, I'll have to reread. I mean, I've read the, the little booklet, but I'll, I'll have to uh, reread it. Oh, yeah. it's, it's a video essay. So oh, it was can, a, okay. Yeah. The one on the, on the features. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I'll have to watch. I'll have to watch that again. But yeah, again, because, you know, people often talks about talk about, you know, how John util, utilize a documentary style yeah. approach and that's true but he was he was no. also using uh surrealism and and you you know noir as you saw with killing of a chinese bookie that's true um, yeah you know, noir and even here uh because he he didn't usually do anything with the frame that would make it more stylized mm -hmm. uh but but here he was like if you look you know often when robert is alone who he plays in this film in the house, he's he's in shadows, he's in darkness. And even that scene when Jenna Rollins passes out and she's in the bedroom with the doctor and and this like this bright red is coming in. And I, I thought it spoke so much to just her mental state. And so he didn't really, you know, I mean, people could take red in all sorts of different ways, but he's he's certain I think audiences can certainly understand that he was communicating. Uh, with the photography of feeling of of this woman in hell, basically, yeah, uh, because of her, and he usually didn't do like that's obviously like an expressionistic style, and he wasn't interested. He did. He wasn't. He was interested in the people, and he, and that's why his films are so intimate and so mm -hmm. organic. And and we obviously he's using the head handheld cameras, but he did. You know, it'd be, if he had if he had made more films, uh, if he if he had if he hadn't died so young, I, I really wonder uh, what other things we would have. I mean, I, I think he would have 
he would have still made these complicated portraits. I'm not saying he would have went and done genre films or <laughs> even no. though he did glorious sort of a genre film, It is, uh, yeah. but it would have been interesting just on a stylistic level, you know, but we'll, we'll never know, unfortunately. Yeah, no, that's very true. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And there's, there's a lot of beauty in this film, a lot of um, great performances. Again, you have to talk about Jenna Rollins. One of my favorite sequences is when her character decides to go out bowling and oh, we see everything so play out of this woman just like <laughs> determined to have a good time yeah. and uh, just yeah. going full out and her hand getting stuck in the ball and she falls and the reaction so and her interaction and desperation, but like trying to make it and be proud. There's so much going on. I love that because, you know, it almost, it almost, told me that she's been with her husband for so long that it's again it's this like his characters are always so innocent and they get into these situations that are over their head and so they're trying they're always trying his yeah again it's it's that coming from this place of innocence and these situations that are they just don't know how to deal with and so the psychiatrist says you know you need to like go meet a man and have sex and yeah and such so, a weird moment yes you know and so she's she's trying she's trying yeah. to Im, to get out of her problems and yep. so she thinks okay i'll go meet a guy by going to a bowling alley you know mm -hmm. and she says says to the to the guy who gives her the bowling shoes i'm here for the sex yes so yes <laughs> it's so funny yes. again just this this absolute innocence and 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 again just a note on like the editing um, just that which you saw less of in the 80s, but not only Cassavetes did this, but a lot of editors, uh, not that John was the editor, but obviously he, he you know, he was like, I, you know, to me, the word a tour, a tour is sort of um, not a word I really like, but I suppose that's true because it's so collaborative. But at the same time, there is an uncompromising vision that he had. And, you know, he had a, obviously would take over the editing or have other editors come in. So uh, in, in this case, you know, if you look at that abrupt editing, which you saw in the 70s as well, is that a, a scene will just suddenly boom, mm -hmm. abruptly cut to the next scene. And if you watch a lot of movies, it'll either end on someone's face for a few seconds and transition to the next one or someone will walk out. But here, for example, when she's with the psychiatrist and he's like, you need to go find sex. It's like, boom, then she's in Europe, like just, yes. and then, and, and, and so your brain has to like, whoa, whoa, what's going on? Like it happens. So <laughs> it happens. So uh, uh, abruptly, it's not like they held it on her face for a few more seconds and then cut to her, uh, you know, buying the ticket. It's like, she's right in the middle of another scene where she's trying to get all her bags in order with this porter who doesn't speak yes, English. <laughs> and what a great idea of her trying to get her bags in order and her baggage, essentially. Yeah, yeah. So there's a lot, a lot to this one. And I love her scenes with, uh, with John. It was kind of cool that they played siblings. It was unexpected for them to do that. And, um, yes. and you yes. just, you see the fact of their connection and it really enriches that first moment when they go uh, or he goes to the cab, you can see what this woman who's his sister in the film just means to him because we haven't seen this side of this sort of yeah. suave, toxic bachelor essentially before. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, I think the sensitivity. 
yeah, she she's sort of see all that love that she has in her, like that she has so yes. so much. She sort of she gives some to him, and again, you don't <laughs> you don't know about their upbringing. You don't know Transfer. like what. Yeah, you you don't know. They don't. They seem to not have seen each other for a while. So, but True. you don't need to know. You know, all you, you just it's it's about what's happening now and their their pro- individual problems and how. Uh, I think she she helps him a great deal. I mean, he doesn't yeah. want her to leave, right? At no, the end. yeah, it's, um, it's a moving conclusion for sure. <laughs> and that that guy shows up in this blizzard to pick her up. I just. That is oh like so Cassavetes, you know. Yeah, um, leave the bag. Yes, or the trunk. Yes, it was great, you know. Yeah. But that's the thing; these are not slice of life. You know, these are heightened. They're 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 common problems, but he is still heightening the situations, and he's still uh, uh, dramatizing and and uh, and or even you know having a lot of comedy uh, because that, that's another thing people talk about. Oh, they're so realistic, realistic, but they're also incredibly idealistic. Um, you know, Frank yep. Capra was his favorite filmmaker, yes. right? And so he was highly influenced by the idealism in in the Capra films or De Sica in Italy. And um, yeah, there's you know, there's so much there's so much to to say. And hopefully more scholars other than, you know, I mean, Carney's done a great deal. Hopefully more people will write about him with the same, you know, intrigue that of some that people have of Hitchcock, you know. Uh, yeah, we sure we'll, hope so. We'll see. We'll yeah. see. Yeah. Well, obviously, there were so many other movies that he made that we could have discussed in greater detail. And who knows, maybe we'll do a part two in the future. But before I let oh, you definitely. go, love to know um, you want to tell us any other favorites that you'd recommend people check out right away? From from his movies or yeah. from um oh, I would say. I would say start from the beginning and just go right, go through. right through. Yeah. That's, that's like the best way to, okay. to handle his films. Cause I think you get a real good understanding of the people from the twenties all the way to their fifties. And also just the arc of, um, of, of the individual problems uh, that people face decade to decade that are so universal. So I would just go right, right from the beginning. Uh, even his studio films, I like. A Child Is Waiting, Too Late Blues. I know he, kind of, you know, sort of condoned them afterwards, but um, they're 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 pretty good. They yeah. they are pretty interesting. So that's what I would do. I would just watch all of them once a week. <laughs> you know, go right all through. Right. You heard Robert. That's what you should do. Well, Robert, I want to thank you so much for doing this. I learned a lot and it was such a pleasure to talk Cassavetes with you. So thank you. You'll have to oh, come no, back. We'll have to do it again. No, please. Anytime. Thanks for having me. Of course. Cassavetes on film as art from Cassavetes on Cassavetes by Ray Carney. Here's John quote. If somebody says there's an art picture, I don't want to go. They usually mean it's beautifully shot or they use certain techniques or it's about loneliness, an empty room with beautiful lighting, and somebody walks through and you hear some eerie music. Very few things come out of the people themselves or their own frustrations. I'm not a highbrow or an intellectual. I'm a street person. I just really believe that all the things that I can think everybody else can feel. I'm not shooting through rainbows or glasses or anything like that. Just taking life and saying, what is my problem? 
The greatest thrill for me is that an uneducated person like me can look at the film we make and understand we were making it for him. It aggravates me when people say you make intellectual films. I'm not an intellectual, yet I believe in art. I believe in it in the movies, in music, and in fine art where it can become a great investment. What's all this about certain stories being commercial and others not? People in the movies should go on strike for quality, not money. In this country, we're not really in love with films, are we? I mean, we're really in love with some kind of attitudes to success. And it's a sad truth because then there doesn't seem to be room for the students of film. That's a sad commentary, not on the greed, but on the numbers game and on the new art of American life, the only all-consuming art, the art of business. So that, supposing you don't want to be in that art, you want to be in another art or self-expression, then there's no outlet, end quote. I want to thank everyone for listening, especially my patrons who support the show and help fund my research equipment, film rentals, RSS fees, and more for as little as a dollar per month at the Film Intuition Patreon, which is the home base for the show. Other ways you can support the podcast are by sharing, reviewing, and subscribing to Watch with Jen wherever you get your podcasts, and also checking out the cool merch store hosted and created by our talented logo designer, Kate Gabrielle. You can find the merchandise store, including shirts, tote bags, stickers, and more by visiting filmintuition.com and clicking on the shop link. The show's theme music is solo acoustic guitar by Jason Shaw and is available in the free music archive. You can also reach me or interact with Watch With Jen anytime on Twitter, either at Film Intuition or our Watch With Jen account as well. Well, until next time, please take care and happy movie watching. This is Jen Johans at FilmIntuition.com and FilmIntuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch with Jen.